Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Bill and I often have this kind of fun debate, like, if you were entering any field now and you had your choice of going into any field, what field would you go in? And he and I both would go into the cross between biology and computer science. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is an episode recorded live at South by Southwest in Austin. Uh, my guest is Melinda Gates. You have probably heard of her from such foundations as the Gates Foundation, which is the largest foundation in the United States uh, with more than $40 billion in assets. They've done work on a dizzying array of issues, malaria, polio, education, climate change, uh, how we feed the world, unbelievable science initiatives. We talk about that and diversity in tech and a million other things. I've gotten feedback from you all that you would like these introductions to be shorter. So I'll make this one shorter. Uh, I began by asking Melinda Gates uh, an unusual question, which is how did we end up having the font Comic Sans? Well, there was a... um product that I was working on called Microsoft Bob. It's one of the biggest failures at Microsoft. And it was a really innovative product. It was just ahead of its time. We didn't have enough computing power to put more graphics on a home screen. But the thing that survived from that was the font. And none of us would have ever predicted that. But that's the font, Comic Sans, a lot of people use now. And it was made just for that? Just for that product, yeah. Do you ever look at signs and regret what you've unleashed upon the world? (laughs) Every now and then. When you were there, you also ran Encarta. Mm. What what was it like trying to reconstruct an encyclopedia? It was really tricky at the time because, again, we were constrained by CD-ROMs and we knew people wouldn't want to buy too many of those discs. Um, And yet we wanted to get all this information digitized. So that was a really tricky project. And actually, one sweet story in there, one of the most infamous demos I did in a very small room, much smaller than this smaller crowd, was to Warren Buffett and his friends. And he owned at the time World Book. And as soon as I demoed the product, his eyes got about this big. He goes, my business is dead. (laughs) And it was. (laughs) Well, it's always good to be able to admit that forthrightly. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So one of the things that I I read in an interview you did with The Atlantic uh, when you were reflecting on your time at Microsoft was you talked about how after a couple of years there, you thought about leaving because the culture itself was so off-puttingly argumentative. Mm. I'm an argumentative person, Mm. um, and so this is sometimes a spectrum I don't see that well. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how cultures like that can put people off, can can, can become exclusionary. Yeah, and just so nobody's confused, I love, love an intellectual debate, and I have a lot of intellectual debates at home, as you can imagine. I have a spouse who is quite intellectual. 
Um, what I don't like or what I got uncomfortable with. So I have a computer science degree. I was used to in university working around mostly men. And then I got an MBA, I got recruited by Microsoft, loved the job. I mean, it was everything I wanted to do, be super innovative, disrupt industries. But the combative culture, I didn't really like. And, and it felt like the arguments weren't just about that intellectual thing. They felt personal sometimes. And so I actually thought about quitting. I had this dream job I loved, but I thought, gosh, I'm going to just, I tried for a while to change and to be more like that. And I just was so unhappy. It was so not me. And I finally realized that, no, what I needed to do was to be myself and be who I was. And as I rose up in the ranks at Microsoft, I ended up running a team of over 1800 people when you, all the products that were under me. I could end up getting people would say, how in the world did you get that amazing developer off the operating system work on your product or that, you know, that amazing talented woman or man? And I'd say, well, we must have created a culture that people just like to work in. And I supported people in very tough meetings. I mean, we were I was preparing teams to go present to Bill and to Steve Ballmer. Right. And I had a very bright line. I didn't talk outside of work about what I was doing at work. But, you know, I just, I felt like we could do it differently. And so I have to be honest, at the foundation, the culture that we have created there extraordinarily purposely has just as much innovation, amazing scientists, like best in class, best in field. We have unbelievable, you know, tough intellectual debates, but they're not personal. And they're, they're supportive of people and their careers. And I think you can nuance that right so that you get the best out of people and you get all the best ideas on the table. Because if you don't do that, you actually leave innovative ideas off the table because people get afraid and they don't want to put their idea out there because they might be criticized. So help me draw out that nuance because this is a place where I think very well-meaning people end up creating very tricky cultures. When do you know that you've got a culture that is argumentative for the sake of being argumentative versus argumentative for the sake of raising opinions, for the sake of making sure voices are heard? How do you create a culture there where people can speak up as opposed to the other version of too far, which is a culture of conformity, a culture where people feel they'll be punished if they say something contrary, because that's another thing people fear. And it's one reason I think they end up thinking when they have a very argumentative culture that probably what they have is a very open culture when it may not yet be that. Yeah. So well, the first way you can know whether you have the right culture to begin with is to measure it. I mean, data tells us everything. You just got to you got to do these pulse surveys of your employees and you do them over and over again. They're quick surveys. But did your best ideas get out on the table? Did you feel safe in that meeting bringing your best ideas up? What happened when you brought that best idea? up? People feel fine if they get a no, if they feel like they got to push their idea forward, they brought it forward. But and then management explains to them, hey, it doesn't work for these reasons. But you'll hear from your employees, you know, and, and to be frank, I don't actually think there's a leader in a room, man or woman, who doesn't know when they've taken one of those arguments too far. If they're honest with themselves in those quiet moments afterwards, instead of just kind of brushing it aside. I mean, you know, when you write the combative email that's just combative for the sake of being combative or just a little too far, you feel bad for a slight moment after you send it. I sent some of those 
I have done those things in meetings, but I have to be honest with myself. And you have to have people around you where you set it up that they will give you feedback. Whether you, if you're a person who takes feedback better 24 hours or 48 hours later, great, set that up. If you're a person who takes feedback better right after you get out of the meeting, set that up. But make sure you have honest voices around you who will be honest with you and you can be honest with them. So you've been writing on, on a related point and speaking a lot about women in technology mm. and what the culture is like there. And you've made an argument here that I think is an interesting one. You, you said, I think, in a speech, who's going to be taking care of our elderly two generations from now? It's going to be AI. But do you want all males in their early 20s and 30s creating the AI that's going to take care of you when you're older? What would happen if that AI was created by all males in their 20s and 30s? I Well, first of all, I don't think they'd fully understand what the needs of older people. I mean, you have to spend time in that community to understand what their needs are. I think you would miss a big part of the empathy gene. Just like young children, the way you treat a young child versus an 18-year-old, you know, 22-year-old, 30-year-old versus an elderly person is pretty different. I hope you always use some compassion, but you use a lot of empathy when you're trying to bring a child up and teach them. And you, and it's tricky because you have to use a lot of positivity even when what you're trying to do is correct behavior. But the same thing with an elderly person, when it's a horrible thing when you start to lose a little bit of your sight or you can't drive anymore and that was your rite of passage when you were younger. And so I think if you, if you have these products that are created by white guys in their 20s, you're just going to miss the mark on both empathy and the actual needs of the elderly and what they're facing. Because this idea to me, it strikes at the heart of this debate, the, the, the counter argument, to the extent there's a counter argument on caring about diversity and hiring in Silicon Valley and in other places is, well, what we want to do above all is hire the best people. Mm. And there's an idea there that is often, I think, uninterrogated of what the best people are. Mm -hmm. But what seems to me to be embedded in your argument is that to create the best products, you need a diversity of people, that the way you have to think about the best people is more than just, I don't know, how they performed in your interview or whether or not you connect to them quickly. And, and that feels to me like a real point of cultural friction in the Valley right now. Mm -hmm. This question of is diversity something people are going for because they're politically correct, mm -hmm. or is it actually something they need to do to build the products that they should be building? They're leaving opportunities off the table. So we know there's good research now that shows your products are better and you're going to reach more markets if you have diversity at the table. I mean, think about, think about the way that women use certain tools online versus men. They're often very, very different. So if you don't have a woman at the table saying, well, we have to have this social component in, or no, I wouldn't connect with my friends, or wow, um, here's a great example. You know, if you want to connect people to nannies and babysitters, that's an idea that came from a female founder. She ran it across Sand Hill Road. Nobody understood it, right? Here's another one that's actually been extraordinarily successful that uh, Ben Horowitz has in invested in, hair weaves for black women. It's an enormous market. When that founder went and he ran it across Sand Hill Road, the guys totally didn't get it. Uh, they went home and asked their wives. High-income wives weren't quite yet using extensions. They didn't understand the, the enormity of that market. Well, Ben Horvitz did, and he invested in it. Well, guess where he grew up? I mean, he went to Berkeley as an African-American wife. It's an enormous opportunity. So when you think about the changing demographics that are happening to this nation, when you think about the workforce today, 
And dual income families now, 63%, the man and the woman is working. Completely different than when I grew up, right, back in the 1960s, when 20% of families were dual income. But you think of, so women are entering the workforce. They're doing all this unpaid labor at home. And so there are amazing opportunities to create efficiencies with that unpaid labor, right? And you think about the changing demographic. By 2044, what we call minorities today in our country, when you add them all up, they will be the majority. So think of all the business that's left aside. And yet, if you don't have diversity at the table, there's no chance you're going to see it. You're just not. And if you're a deal, if you're, if you're a VC and you're about deal flow, you're missing all kind of deals because the deals you're investing in are the same ones of like what you've known before. Because it's easy. You've seen those before. You, you keep investing in the same thing. So one of the things that you've spoken about in this space is that when you went to school in the 80s, women got about 37% of computer science degrees and 37% of law degrees. Since then, law women get now 47% of the degrees, but computer science, it's gone down to 18%. Mm-hmm. What do you think is behind the divergence? Yeah, so it was both law and medicine were right around where we were in computer science. And as you know, law and medicine have gone like this. As you say, computer science went like that. I've dug through the data. Actually, I've looked with a lot of different institutions that hold the data. Nobody actually knows the answer. But the thesis is that right at the time, so when I was coming up in the computer science industry, when I was a kid, all the games were pretty gender neutral. I played Pong. I played Breakout. I played the adventure games. But when gaming became very combative and it became about guns and fighting and and all of those combative things, Girls weren't interested in them, and women weren't interested in them. And so the people who were interested in creating them were men. So more men poured in, more games came out like that, and women went, ooh, so many men in this industry not interested. And we know that women, even today, who make it through computer science undergraduate degrees and then go into work, say, for one of the big companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, they will tell you through surveying they are... If they join a team that's all male, they're just not as comfortable. So they will seek out the teams that have two or three women because it makes an enormous difference into how they feel and how they perform. And again, we know at the low end, so I'll use another worldwide example. If you use the low end, the grassroots at a village level, I see this and I have data from all over the world. When women band together in groups, when anybody bands together in groups, that's the only way you create societal change is to have transparency and band together. We see at the village level with women, when 10 women get together and start, they they start to get their voice, they start to demand their rights, they start to band together to save or to get loans. We see it at the CEO and board level in the United States. You put one woman on a board, nothing is going to change. She assimilates. You put two or three women on a board, they start asking the hard questions. Well, why is it like this? Why aren't we creating more of this? You know, what is going on? What's the latest culture survey? What does the data say? I'd like you to unpack that gaming idea for me, because I haven't heard this before. And I think the, the counter argument somebody would naturally come up with is, well, was that because men just like video games more? There's this idea that men are object oriented and women are people oriented. And that what you're seeing there is a reflection of somehow biological or, or maybe biocultural differences within the genders that mm-hmm. led to this divergence because you know law um, medicine these were very these were also in many ways exclusionary cultures the culture of surgeons can be a tough culture to break into the culture of law and and, and law office is not a great culture oftentimes and yet there was some critical mass that happened there so so 
think about how welcoming they are. So even if you look at U.S. surgeons, women still, they're just now breaking that glass ceiling. If you look at law partners, women are just now. But it's because we have this preponderance of women coming up. So to your question, what causes that? We also have to look at pathways in, right? So for instance, you have this self-fulfilling prophecy now in the, or I'll call it, you get the flywheel spinning. But for instance, if you are Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, you're hiring from the Ivy Leagues. You're hiring white guys from a particular kind of school because that's what you know and that's what you see. Now, luckily, those companies now finally have, some of them have it more true than others. They're looking for good women, but they have this problem because women haven't wanted to come. More women don't want to go there, but they're they're now competing for that talent. But we have to open up more pathways. There were more pathways into biology at all kinds of universities. It wasn't just that you got to go to Harvard Medical School if you only came out of an Ivy League. You could go to Harvard Medical School even if you went to the University of Georgia. So we have to create pathways. That is, we have to do make sure that colleges have that first course so it's welcoming to women. So in, in math, we know, for instance, or in the sciences and, and in computer science, that women don't like just three theoretical problems. But if you open up that first computer science course and it has real world problems, more women both sign up and stay in computer science afterwards, say they had a good experience. If you also take a college like Northeastern, they're doing some really interesting things where they're saying, you know what? For our computer science graduate degree, we're taking liberal arts kids. Well, you don't have to have had computer science before. Or a lot of people, if you're somebody of color, your chance of taking an unpaid summer internship is zero. You can't afford to do that. If you're a white guy from a high income, you can take, my kids can take an unpaid summer internship. So you create internships, which is what SUNY is doing in New York, so that they're winternships. They're actually paid and they work over a series of trimesters. You both go to college and you get an internship. And so we have to create these ways that people can come into this field that aren't through traditional ways. What did you make of the Jamie Damore memo at Google? Um, I don't think it was accurate at all. In fact, the women inside of Google will tell you that it was a false statement. But yes, will we ever get to 50-50 women in computer science and men? Maybe not. We might. It might be that women preferentially, you might get to 40%. But that's... If we get that far, it will be better off than we are. But you can't be where we are today. That just makes no sense. And I will tell you one of the few hopeful signs, now that we are actually talking about this as society and we're pushing on all of these things, for the first time we've seen the uptick in AP computer science classes and scores for girls coming out of high school. So that's actually a pretty hopeful sign. And what we're trying to do is not just the Stanford's and the University of Washington that has this very welcoming incoming class for computer science. We're now trying to spread that to all the state schools around. So you are in, you know, Florida State University, you have access to a great opening computer science course for men or women. One of the things that I've been tracking in Silicon Valley as this conversation has moved on as the after the Demore thing, but 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 along other lines too, Sam Altman wrote an interesting piece about this. There's a feeling among many folks in the valley, in the technology industry, that there is a stultifying political correctness descending. Mm -hmm. That there was an ability to understand, to bat around, to try out almost any idea. That was part of what made the American technology sector so great. 
And that now as people move into this space, as people try to diversify it, as people try to make it reflect the country better, that there is a boundary on the conversation that is dangerous. What, what is your response when you hear that? That's called an old boys network. That's a club. I don't like clubs. I mean, come on. You take the walls down, you democratize something, it's better for everybody. So we know that, I mean, if you take any societal issue, people who are in power will hold on to their power. So I am not about political correctness. I'm not about window dressing. None of those things are going to work and they're not going to solve anything. I'm about how do we take the tools we have and create leverage. So one of the things I'm doing, for instance, I look at, okay, what are the pathways in? What's the environment in terms of bias? And then I look at innovations and I say, okay, less than 2% of VC funding goes to women. 0.2% of VC funding goes to women of color. Is there a problem there? Yes. So what I'm doing is not just using my voice, I'm moving my money. And I'm moving my money to investing in great investors who Absolutely. I want to return on my money. I'm not doing this for social impact. For my investment dollars, I want to return. But we're over-indexing for women and people of color. And let's see what happens. So you said something a minute ago that I think is super important about that these changes can benefit everyone. There is a feeling. It's true in tech, but it's true, I think, in the country more broadly right now. Zero-sum thinking that society's resources and capacities are zero-sum is very intuitive to people. There is a feeling of it in foreign aid, that the money we're sending overseas is money that we could be spending on our problems here, a feeling of it around immigration, that the jobs people are coming to take or jobs that we could be giving to native-born Americans, a feeling of it in the technology sector, that if you're going to have more folks from non-traditional backgrounds in these jobs, you'll be fewer for the current slate of engineers. And that thinking, particularly as the country goes through this period of demographic change, feels like it's shaping a lot of what we do, of where our politics are going, of where our conversation is going. What is your approach to those fears? Because they are real, deeply held fears. They are. They're very dangerous. And they're also not true. I mean, if you think about how society has changed because of innovation, there are innovations we could not have dreamt of in the 1960s. I mean, Bill and I talk about this at home. I say to him, you know, I was there when the dream at Microsoft was a computer on every desk, and then they modified it while I was there in the early 1990s and in every home. They weren't dreaming about a, a computer in our pockets, right? And so when you think about, like, okay, when I think about the world at large, think about South Korea. They were a low-income country. Today, because of investments the United States and the UK and others made, in helping them get their infrastructure going, foreign aid investments. They are now not only a middle-income country, and not only did they host the Olympics, but they're also giving foreign aid to other countries because they know the difference. So we're opening up whole markets. When I see what's going on in Nairobi, Kenya, I was just there in January, and their own innovation hubs, they're creating products that not only serve Kenyans, that serve 10 other countries on the continent of Africa. When you look at the billionaires who are just starting to come out in Africa, it's because they've created markets. So how could we begin to say, oh, well, we should just look at this. Look, if we want markets, let's not just think about the United States. Let's, let's create markets and make the world better for other people and sell our products out there. So then is there a self-interested case for American foreign aid? 
Is that part of the way that conversation should be held? And it is the way we help. We have it. Absolutely. There's both. If you want peace and security in the world, you don't want a bomb showing up on our doorstep or bioterrorism event. You don't want Ebola on our doorstep, which we have dealt with. We got lucky, to be frank, on Ebola. It broke out in Lagos, but we were able to actually contain it because of a polio clinic and the CDC was there. You guys, we would still be sitting here with Ebola in our country had it broke out in Lagos, Nigeria. Most populous country in Africa, most populous city in Africa. So peace and security, we want that, I think, as a world, for the whole world and for ourselves. But you want to create markets for yourselves and places that you can create more jobs? Yeah. And our voice in the world as a nation holds an outsized impact. And we need to step up and recognize that and take responsibility for that and then take the right actions. So this is a way in which I think the American conversation about what is possible has become narrowed over time. Mm -hmm. You go back 50 years and there was this dream of what if the American vision, liberal democracy could defeat communism, right? That was an organizing precept. Mm -hmm. And I don't think when we imagine our role in the world now, I don't think there's a real clear shared vision of what world we are trying to help create. So here's my question for you, and you can answer it however you hear it. What world is possible in 2030? What world should we define broadly be working towards in 2030? How will we know if we have succeeded? Well, to be frank, all the member countries of the United Nations set out the goals they have for 2030, which is to try and imagine what is actually possible, whether it's climate change, whether it's fewer deaths for women, uh, fewer deaths for kids, less disease, better forests. I mean, that, that is the vision they set out. But, you know, like Bill and I, we have absolute goals that we think are achievable. We want Childhood mortality has been cut in half since 1990. Cut in half. That is a phenomenal number. It's going to get cut in half again by 2030. It's actually harder now because we've actually cleaned up the low-hanging fruit. So we have some hard, innovative stuff that has to happen. Maternal deaths, they can get cut uh, by substantially. So to me, I see a world in 2030 that if we make the right investments as a nation and as a world, I mean, it takes the other, it takes both the developing country to make certain investments and it takes the developed world to make certain investments. We can have a much more peaceful and prosperous world in 2030, no doubt. So give me some, some possible metrics here. The stat that you all use a lot is the infant mortality one. And I think that is one of the most remarkable statistics of our age. What are the other things like that? Are there, are there other things that when we look back from 2030 or 2040, it is possible that we will be able to say this thing that humankind struggled with forever mm -hmm. is now no longer the threat it once was? If you get rid of another metric is stunting. Mm -hmm. uh, because children who are stunted in the world, I mean, if you look back... You want to say what stunting is? Yeah, stunting is when you're not the right height for your age, and we have metrics from all over the world where stunting is still happening, like Ethiopia. You get out of your car in Ethiopia outside of Addis, and, I mean, you, you don't even have to get the data. You, you can see the stunting. I mean, these kids just aren't nearly as tall as they should be. Um, when you end stunting, it means that we're able to feed the world and feed it properly. And so if you go back to the statistics in London, closer to the turn of the century, people were much, much shorter because they didn't have all the right nutrition. Today in the United States, you see very little stunting because people, by and large, now we have an obesity problem, have the right nutrition. So the world can absolutely feed itself, but it's going to come down to innovations. 
And so, you know, one of the things we're working on as a foundation is drought resistant seeds and flood resistant seeds, because who's going to be most affected by climate change? It's the poor farmers around the world. And when you're out in their fields, they'll talk to you about the rains coming later, coming less often, and when they come flooding instead of just the right amount. So I think infant mortality, maternal mortality, can the world feed itself? And are we getting down the emissions that lead up to climate change? Are we seeing a good downward trajectory on that? I think those are four of the big metrics. So when we were talking backstage and I I asked you, you know, what what do you want to make sure we covered? Something you said to me is that I want to make sure we talk about why I'm optimistic. Mm. And oftentimes when I hear people make the case for pessimism, that case really resolves down to climate change that there is this big problem, this planetary scale problem, and we're not doing enough to fix it. Why, given the trends on climate change, are you optimistic? Well, look at what just happened a couple of months ago, where finally companies, consumer companies in the United States and and, and other places too, are committing to having, putting no more plastic in the environment by 2030. Using, and some of them have much more, thank God, nearer term goals. But they basically all had to sign up for some something around plastic and renewables, right? And why is that happening? Because their consumers are pushing them and maybe even more importantly, their employees are pushing them. And I go into these large companies now and they are paying attention to their employees because people, as as you well know, are not believing in institutions as much anymore, but they're putting demands on their employers. And the employers, because they want a good workforce and they when they train somebody and they spend two years training that person and getting them up to speed, they want to keep them. They don't want them stolen away. But this generation cares a lot about social change. It's the younger millennials and even that Gen Z group that's you know 22 and below coming up behind them care a lot about social change. But is, is that fast enough for us to have the kind of global action we need to keep warming under, let's say, under three degrees Celsius. Yeah, that's going to be up to innovation. I mean, one of the things Bill and I talk about in our annual letter outside of the foundation that we do is he's started a fund, Breakthrough Energy Ventures. It's a hundred million dollar fund because they are trying to fund inventions. There just wasn't enough money going in there. So that's really going to come down to, do we get inventions that we can invent our way out of some of those things? But Warren Buffett always likes to remind us, and you know, again, he's 87 at this point. He's still, a, he's a huge font of wisdom. But he said, you know, back in the time when it was the horse and buggy and we started having cities, he said, you would have thought we were all going to drown in shit. <laughs> and we invented our way out of that problem. And when I think about what's coming with autonomous vehicles and what's already starting to be on the road, and you think about kids not even, they're saying that kindergartners today just will never drive. So think about if those are all electric cars. We're not going to be putting at least that part out. And I was just having a conversation with someone backstage because he's deeply invested in clean cook stoves around the world, you know, those coal cook stoves. And we're doing the measurement on those to see, do they make an enormous difference? And you can switch families over. It's not very expensive from coal burning to cook stoves. So I even think back the first time I went to Beijing, let me think about this. Bill and I were married. It was 1997, went to Beijing. Oh my gosh, the smog in Beijing from not just the factories, but the cook stoves, the coal in the city. They've completely gotten rid of coal in the city. And now they're starting to work on their factories, right? And they're seeding the clouds and doing other things. So again, having these goals, people will start to work on them and measure them. I mean, look at at Beijing now, the 
because of actually what was going on in the U.S. Embassy and there was a measurement device up there and it got reported out, the citizens are putting pressure on the government and the government is seeing what they're doing to their own country. And so they're very incentive to start cleaning up their act. So I, I struggle with this on, on an almost like characterological level. I tend to have a lot of faith when I look back over the past couple of hundred years that we will innovate our way out of central problems. I mean, you hear about this with whale, you know, whale fat to create candles and kerosene. And there's the famous story about the horse and the buggies. And then sometimes I think, is that just the short span of time in which I've been alive? Is that letting hope stand in for a plan? How do you know when betting on innovation is a bet that is realistic versus just a way to talk yourself out of being afraid of the problem? Well, I guess, and I can speak personally about this, Bill and I have been at this work now in the foundation for 17 years. And, you know, I see the numbers in child mortality. I see it when I go out to the developing world, the difference in Arusha, Tanzania versus when I first started traveling there. But then I also see we are working on this science inside the foundation with some of the very best minds. When you think about what kind of corn used to be grown in the United States and the little tiny stalks and what you could get on it, right? Many years ago, and now you, and you, the number of people that are farming in our country versus the percentage that are farming today, right? It's what freed us up to have extra labor to do other things. So when I think of the modifications that came in maize, it's one of the most modified plants in the world. Well, I sat in a meeting on Thursday where these scientists have hit on something where it looks like in probably seven years, we won't have to fertilize plants anymore. They're figuring out what is it about legumes that do nitrogen fixing in the soil. So for the developing world where most people in Africa are still subsistence farmers, holy smokes. I mean, fertilizer is it in the developing world. And many times the market price crashes or they don't have access. But if we can nitrogen fix, if we can genetically modify a cereal crop, which it looks like we're gonna be able to, a maize crop, to nitrogen fix from the atmosphere back into the soil, wow, then they will start to be able to grow. I mean, when you can grow 30% more food, think about China. China wasn't able to feed itself. Why can the UN talk about the fact that, you know, poverty has been cut in by so much in half? Well, it's because China figured out with the Green Revolution how to feed themselves. Now they overdid some things like fertilizer. But if we can get rid of fertilizer and we can nitrogen fix the plants, they can fix themselves, Holy smokes, that is, that's a game changer. That's just one little tiny thing. I mean, if I told you what I see that's coming in HIV or malaria, the mathematical modeling in malaria and how we're applying different tools and where we might be able to go, malaria has been around since the time of the Egyptians, okay? It's been with us forever. Um, and it's a parasitic disease. It's very hard. We actually have a chance of getting malaria in my lifetime. Are you talking here about the CRISPR gene drive approach? Or when you say what you're seeing coming, what are you seeing coming? How are we going to destroy yeah, malaria? Yeah, we, we can, we, we're modifying mosquitoes, right? So they will, in one or two generations, not carry malaria. Do you want to talk a bit about how this works? Because it is mind-blowing. Yeah, well, we, an Australian scientist figured out, basically, uh, it's very complicated, but how to basically... Um, change something inside of a mosquito so that they basically, uh, the females are all the ones that carry malaria. They, it, uh, males don't carry malaria. So a female carries malaria because they go and get a blood meal off of a human. They put a parasite in your body, your liver works on it and boom, eventually you have malaria many days later. 
we can modify the males who mate with the females to become sterile. And over a couple of generations, there are not enough males to mate with females. And so the, you kill, you crash the population. Those technologies, um, the CRISPR gene editing, all of that, there are days when I wonder if when this period in history will not be remembered for Donald Trump or whatever else is going on, this will be the period in which we figured out how to take control of the genome. Mm -hmm. This will be a period in which humankind began to drive its own evolution, for better or maybe for worse. Mm -hmm. Is that me having too much Gattaca in the back of my head? <laughs> no, I mean, what we're gonna be able to do with the genome and then with precision medicine and artificial intelligence, I mean, we're only on the, we're on the tip of the cusp of where we might go. And that's why the ethics pieces in this are deeply important. But Bill and I often have this kind of fun debate, like we have a fun debate about, well, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? We also have the fun debate of, if you were entering any field now and you had your choice of going into any field, what field would you go in? And he and I both would go into the, the cross between biology and computer science. Huh. What is gonna happen in those fields? We're only beginning. G tell me a little bit about that. Well, because what you can do with computational models to- I can't do very much with them at all, okay. actually. <laughs> to see spread of disease around the world, but people don't even realize that we're taking the data off their phones. So we're seeing, if you're in Africa, we're seeing if you're a worker, how often you're leaving Nairobi to go out and work on a field. And maybe you're, or in a forest, actually in the case of malaria, people go work in a forest somewhere. We couldn't figure out why the malaria kept coming back in the village after we'd eliminated it. Well, there's a forest kind of malaria. So now we can do modeling of the mosquitoes and how they move around, what distance they go. We can look at GPS data to see how people are moving around. And then you can apply very specific tools bed nets in a certain area, malaria medicines in a certain area, eventually, hopefully a vaccine, eventually you'll be able to release genetically modified mosquitoes. So just what we can do with that, that's just mathematically modeling. We haven't even done the machine learning piece on that yet. And then you cross that with the biology of what we're learning about the human body. I mean, what we don't know yet about our guts is mind blowing. What we are just learning about the gut microbiome and, and to be frank, sorry, but the vaginal microbiome, we don't know why certain people in the world uptake HIV quicker, certain women than others, contract it more from men. It's not just about the population and the amount of sex that's happening. It actually has something to do with their vaginal microbiome, we just recently learned. So what we're learning about that and is just breast milk. No one has ever really done a full-scale study of breast milk. One of the things we just hit on that we're learning is that you not only, we know you pass nutrients through breast milk, we, the human body sends messages to the child's immune system through, there are messaging cells through breast milk. Who knew that? Like what kind of messages are we talking about? We don't know yet. But we think it has to do with the mechanism of how it turns on the child's immune system, right? And it's one of the reasons we, you know, like there's certain cultures where they extract the colostrum because they think it's dirty milk. So the first, you know, the first feeding terrible idea because we've known for a long time that is one of the key nutrients kids need but you know we don't even know why it makes a difference for for kids stunting their growth um whether the mom breastfeeds and how often she breastfeeds for how many months we're just learning about these things and the quality of breast milk like if somebody is we know if a woman's more nutritionally fed the quality of her breast milk is better 
So we're thinking, gosh, there may be some interventions there that might be able to happen. Let me ask you about a place where some of these trends converge. You've done a lot of writing in your annual letters about the ways in which overpopulation fears are overblown. How if you reduce infant mortality, you over time also reduce birth rates. But there's another dimension to this, particularly around climate change, where as we do pull people and pull countries out of poverty, they buy more cars, they eat a lot more meat. How do you keep rising prosperity globally, which hopefully we will continue to see or see more of, mm -hmm. from becoming a runaway climatological problem? Okay, well, the biggest problem is if you get overpopulation, because if you have overpopulation, then anything you sell, whether it's a car or they want to eat meat, you're, you're going to have an enormous problem on your hand. So just to clarify for everybody, because a lot of people don't know this, and I say, and Bill and I had this false assumption. We thought that as more children survive, that as a parent has, they see their children surviving, we thought, oh my gosh, we help parents keep their kids alive, they're going to have more of them. Luckily, the converse is true. So when parents see that two of their children will survive in the developing world and grow up to be healthy, they naturally bring down the number of children that they have. They're basically, they will tell you, I'm having children. I may have to have six, seven, or eight, because if I don't, they won't all survive into adulthood. And because most of them don't. In fact, if I sat in a room like this with a group of women, which I often do uh, on a mat, and I'll say, how many of you know somebody that's lost a child in childbirth? All hands go up. You say, how many of you have lost a child in childbirth? More than seven eighths of the hands go up. So I think if we bring the population down, we make it voluntary so women have knowledge and access about the tools, then to be honest, it's not gonna matter what car you sell them. In 10 years, you're gonna be selling them a car that doesn't have a motor, right? You're gonna be selling them an electric car. So, okay, then you don't get that environmental problem. So again, if we keep innovating on our products, what you sell them. I mean, one of the things Bill's been very vocal about is he's working with some VC companies on meatless meat, right? It's all plant-based. Right. And so eventually, I think we will get taste in meat down to a point where people will eat a plant based meat and feel like, hey, this is just as good as the meat I'm eating. I, I currently eat a lot of plant based meats. There you go. I think most of it's as good as the meat people are eating. So I'm in the news for better and for worse. <laughs> I think a lot about the ways in which what we cover does not necessarily track on to what is most important in our age. What we cover day to day is not what they're going to write about in history books a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. If we covered what you think to be the most important stories in our age, what would get more coverage than it does? And I don't just mean trend lines. I mean topics. What topics don't get enough coverage compared to their importance? Women entrepreneurs, women farmers who are doing incredible things, none of whom look like one another. Um, we don't write about amazing African-American businesses that are coming up and the founders and what they're doing and how they're thinking about their businesses. We write about the one, two, three heroes there, but we don't go out and, and write about, wow, look at this amazing thing this person is doing in their community and how they're changing their community. Like I think about the national discourse, because we're involved in this, of at the, at the national level, the national discourse on education. And then I go out and talk to teachers and I said, well, why don't you participate in that? They said, because it's not, it's not helpful and it's not instructive. Like what I'm doing here in my classroom or in my school building or in my community, that's what's changing lives. And I think we don't get enough of those community stories out there. And let me ask you the other side of it. What are the biggest global risks in the next 10 years? If we were 
we spend a lot of time covering what's going wrong or what you should be afraid of. What are the things that you are afraid of? A bioterrorism event. Definitely. Most definitely. Why is that at the top of your list compared to a dirty bomb? I mean, there are a lot of ways that. Yeah, you but can a bioterrorist event could spread so quickly and we are so unprepared for it. So unprepared. Even now? Yeah. Think about how global the U.S. is. Just say you brought one into New York and uh, if you had something could fast spread, how many people, and especially if it's what we call latent, you didn't see whatever the disease was for even 24, 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Think of the number of people that leave New York every day and go all over the world. We're an interconnected world. What would being prepared mean? It would be knowing uh, what our safety standards are, what to look for, what the reporting network looks like. I mean, you'd basically have the equivalent of CDC for disease. I mean, CDC is the gold standard, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States. It is the gold standard for the world. You'd have one of those for for a bioterrorism event. Not that they don't monitor that, but I think we we would make more investments in that. That is a genuinely scary answer to that question. That's why, I don't, that's why I don't like to answer it, and I don't talk about it very much. When you've done the amount of travel and, and spent the amount of time that you have over the past two decades in other countries, what have you come to believe is culturally distinct about America? I don't really think the U.S. is as culturally distinct as we think we are. Honestly, I think we think more of ourselves than we should. When I travel around the world, the thing that has struck me time and time and time again is how similar we are and how the same. And I meet people of all income levels in countries all over the world. We are so the same. We care about many of the same things. We care about our children. We care about our safety. We care about having some economic opportunity uh, so that we can rise to our fullest potential, as can our kids. It's the same anywhere I go. If I ask a man or a woman farmer, you know, who lives a mile and a half out on a dirt road, and I say to them, okay, what are your hopes and dreams for your family? They always talk about education for their kids, always. And I think, God, that's the same thing my parents wanted for me. It's the same thing I want for my kids. It's the same thing most people in the South want. So I think we think we're so unique and we're not. I mean, to be frank, we're lucky. We're lucky if you grew up in this country to have the road infrastructure that we have, to have the money that flows, you know, to have our health system, which is imperfect. But for the most part, most people have access to decent health here. We're lucky. And so we think of ourselves as so unique because we've gotten to this point. But you have to forget that all of these pieces came together. And so part of what I'm out in the developing world, what I'm looking at is where are the breakdowns that happen in their system. And if you could get those going, how could they then be like us? Let me then ask you about a way in which your experience has been unique. You are one of the richest human beings who has ever lived. Mm -hmm. And that happened at a certain moment in your life Mm -hmm. that you were not always. As you've gone through that experience, what problems in your life have you found that money can solve and what problems can it not solve? Mm. Yeah. So just so everyone knows, I grew up in a very middle income family in Dallas, Texas, and uh, I have three siblings, four kids. Um, It was be very difficult for my parents to put us through college. We could see that, but they were insistent that all four of us would go to college and they would figure out a way to pay for it, which is a very powerful message from your parents. All of us, two girls and two boys. As I've come into this situation that I can't believe I find myself in, Well, let me just say first the thing that I always come back to 
It's about your values, 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 values. Everything that I am about is about trying to live out my values and trying to teach my kids our values. And uh, to question, you know, do we have the right values? Are, are, we, are we living up to those? So I don't think that changes. I don't think you're low, middle, or high income. If you have good values and you live and teach those, you're going to get off track here and there. Your kids are going to get off track here and there, but you're going to be basically okay. You know, it's interesting. I was sitting, it was probably nine years ago, with a group of kids in East L.A., very difficult neighborhood. Many had been in and out of prison, uh, hear gunshots at night and stuff, and they were saying, oh, if we could just be like you, if we wouldn't, and your, your kids and your families, you know, these high-income families, we wouldn't have so much alcoholism or this or that problem. There are absolutely more issues in those neighborhoods, you bet, because of, of all kinds of things going on and, and, and the infrastructure that's not there and, and the crime. But I said to them, we have the same alcohol problems. We have the same drug addiction problems. We face a lot of the same social issues what we can have access when we need to reach that golden ring and say, I need to find the best therapist for my kid. I need to go and help this you know, person with drug addiction. I can reach and find some of the best care. And I think the two of the best things people can have access, no matter what your level of income here, is good health care and a great education. You get those two things, you can be on your way and you can do pretty well in life. And I think in, in high-income families, you do face some things in your families where you see some of your kids' friends who, because their parents are wealthy, they don't tend to the kids. They have lots of choices in life. One thing when you're wealthy is you have lots of choices in life about who will serve up what to you, how you spend your time. And so you see some of those kids are actually very unhealthy because the parents aren't home and they're very busy. And so we face that in some of our school communities. And I really try to make sure our kids have a diverse set of friends and we're lucky enough to be able to travel. When we go out on, they have gotten to go on safari in Kenya, but boy, have they spent a lot of time in poverty in Kenya and South Africa and Tanzania. To me, it's important they see the whole world, not this little just pinprick of where they live in Seattle. And so I know we need to be respectful of your time. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read over the years that have influenced you, that have moved your mind, that you would recommend that others read? I would say Homo Sapiens, for sure. That was just in the last few years I read that. The Yuval Noah Harari book? Yes. Yeah. Love that book. I would say it well, it changed my view on Africa, which was Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Payton. That definitely changed some of my views about the world. And then the other one I would say, I, I want to recommend it, but I'm only a quarter way in, so that's a little dangerous. But So my husband and I often read books and then pass them to each other or read the same book at the same time. But it's currently his favorite book, so I'm reading it and I'm loving it, but I'm only a quarter way through Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. It's already changing my view about some things. Melinda Gates, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Melinda Gates. Uh, thank you, as always, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, uh, to everybody at Vox Media who made our South by Southwest event happen, and to all of you, the fine listeners of The Ezra Klein Show, to whom I am always eternally grateful. 